Welcome to the 14th episode of the Front End Greatness Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Koponen. Before we start with the guest segment of this episode, I'm super happy to share some personal news with all the people who are listening to this podcast. I just last week started a new job at a company called Swarmian. It's really hard for me to put in words how excited I am, but I am more excited than I have ever been about joining a new company. I find the product that Swarmia builds very meaningful personally because it has the potential to improve the lives of millions of developers across the world by improving the way their teams work. In addition, I'm super happy to learn how you build great products starting from the early stages of a B2B SaaS company. My today's guest, Kimo Brunfeld, has also joined Swarmia quite recently, and I'm super happy to have him in the show. Kimo has been in the software industry for nearly 10 years, consulting enterprises, doing product development in different startups, and managing a webshop he co-founded. He likes to code on his free time, and his GitHub profile is full of random projects, some generally useful and most built just for his own fun. Hi, Kimo, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into automated visual testing? Yeah, sure. As I said, I've been working in the industry for quite a while now, and I've been quite excited about coding on my free time as well. So mostly the projects that I've been working on have been web related. So they have been somewhat related to either the backend or the front end of, of web development. And from, I think. Quite in the beginning, I already have been kind of trying different approaches to how we could easily approach testing for frontends. And especially like, since I've been doing my own projects, I would have wanted to find ways that would be basically the minimal amount of work that you need to do to get some kind of confidence of shipping products faster. So I guess that's been my main goal with all of these uh, testings and naturally visual testing sounded kind of that could be the solution uh, but i guess after this discussion we can we can decide whether it, it is or is not yeah that's interesting i really like the hands-on approach and that testing is for lazy people sort of <laughs> way of looking at it because i think for a lot of developers testing is like extra work and not something you'd consider to be like the lazy person's choice but i i, I do agree that uh, there's a lot of promise in visual testing and, you know, being able to ship easily with confidence is something that I guess every developer would, you know, want to have in their work. Um, so what do you think every front-end developer should know about visual testing? So it's quite broad question, so I, I hope I can answer it the best. I think the like key points that, that I think when I'm, I'm kind of trying to test projects visually is that um, because you're testing from the highest level of the stack, basically, you are probably gonna end up having trouble that affects all the stack. So you will need to deal with like network issues in the backend, uh, assuming you are not faking requests or mocking stuff. So you're dealing with network requests. You need to have a backend connected, the, the backend needs to be in certain state. You need to have the database for that. Like I'm, I'm now talking about projects that are actually connected to some kind of database, which us usually is the case when you're dealing with some kind of front end application. 
Um, so the first thing I, I want to kind of understand is that to be able to do this visual testing, what kind of issues do I need to solve in the whole stack before I can actually start the visual testing? So basically it means that you need, need the application running somewhere and not, I know I'm talking about front-end applications uh, running in the browser. So you, you need to have some kind of either staging or production environment that you are comparing against. So usually what I do is with my own projects is that I, I just have the production version and then I have the preview version of the, what, what I'm going to release. And then I'm going to compare these to each other. And in, in real projects, you could have some kind of staging environment where you have everything set up so that you don't need to basically, um, deal with the data whenever you start the test suite, but it's already running correctly the staging environment. So that, that's one thing, kind of how complicated the setup will be to get everything running together. Sometimes it might, might be actually very hard to get it running in a state that you can, can do visual testing. Um, and now I'm talking about application visual testing. So basically testing the whole application visually, then you can of course split it into different parts. So you, you can have component visual testing that is kind of like unit testing visually, but the, the stack problems I, I was talking about are related to the full integration tests yeah, as, as visual tests. Yeah. Uh, problem that I faced, like how do you set up a proper, like an E2E environment? So basically, yeah, it is similar to how uh, the problems that you have with E2E tests, because well, you're doing E2E tests, but just tests, but just visually. So I think. In a lot of environments, mocking the actual APIs is a viable option. It's not the ideal option, but then, for example, in a past project that I worked, it would have taken probably months to get, you know, the backend people aligned and the DevOps people aligned to get, you know, some sort of a staging environment set up. So it was just a lot easier for me and actually also super useful to yeah. just mock the requests and the benefit also was that you could use these mock endpoints when you would be developing the app so it would speed up some views that had very slow requests so you get kind of the double benefit but of course you get also the double risk if you you know that you develop against the mock data and then you run the tests against the mock data then you might not actually hit the, the correct API endpoints at any point. So it's a trade-off, yeah. but I, I would say that you still get benefits even if you mock stuff, which is nice. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So what else, what else is, is useful to know when, when someone wants to do this sort of visual testing? So some other parts that I usually, usually think of is that how do you want to approach timeouts or waiting stuff that will appear at some point, but you are not sure yet like when. So I think the traditional way is to just use time-based timeout. So you have like, wait for this element or, or actually just wait 30 seconds. And then you kind of hope that everything has been loaded uh, already. And I think that's uh, what people think about visual testing. They most probably think projects that has been excessively using time-based timeouts and 
whenever you deploy a new like PR and you get the CI running, it, it will fail to well time out exceed it because for some reason the virtual machine didn't respond fast enough or something like that. So um, what I like to do nowadays is if I need to wait, I, I kind of try to tie the waiting to a specific event, for example, some content appearing to the website or some resource has, has been specifically downloaded and so on. So timeouts are, are definitely one point. Exactly. Yeah. So, cause, well, it's the same with E2A testing. So yeah, some tools that do this very well, uh, Cypress does this pretty well. Um, and actually testing library does this pretty well. Then there's Playwright, which is like Microsoft's, I'm not sure if it's a fork. But it may be a rewrite, but some people from the Puppeteer team went to Microsoft to do like a new version of Puppeteer that is more testing focused. And it has like this sort of auto waiting functionality and some heuristics on when something is, has appeared. So it is definitely something that a lot of the tools in this space are trying to address. In yeah, yeah, definitely. I haven't actually used the play, right? I'm, I've only used Puppeteer for, but I mean, Puppeteer is not geared towards testing and a um, bunch of utility libraries usually on top of those so to make it easier. So well, I think we can actually later talk about the tooling. I, because I, re I was really interested about the history. So I went back and actually checked when these tools have been released. So it's going to be an interesting look into the history and we can maybe have some memories about those tools. Yeah. So in addition to this sort of network stuff and waiting timeouts and this sort of flakiness, what else, what else is important? Um, then something you will probably hit is anim animations and, and like dynamic stuff that is not important really in terms of the tech, what you want to, what you want to test usually. So I, either it's a, well, let's say you have a web landing website and, and you have some kind of a video or animation in the beginning, you don't really care whether that animation is, is specifically in the same frame as in, in both of those applications, but you would most probably want to just ignore the animation from these visual tests and then deal with it in other ways, either leave it for manual testing or something else. But animations is definitely something that, that will be, you might notice in, in these tests. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something that is at the same time uh, hard to test, like, you know, how you don't know, write tests for animations. Uh, and at the same time, it's also something that can make other testing harder. So like seemingly when you build stuff with great animations, you, you feel like, you know, I can write a keyframe or, you know, use some CSS easy, easy peasy, or, you know, just use some library for that, but then actually making sure that these animations work and don't complicate other stuff is an interesting challenge. In one of the yeah. projects uh, that I worked in where we had a lot of animations that would then uh, would hinder our ability to test, uh, we actually did all our animations through React Spring. So it would be like on the JavaScript side. So mm -hmm. we just had a wrapper for, you know, all the Spring animation stuff that would then check if we were in the testing environment and there's a flag in, in that library that you can use to, you know, disable the 
basically set the animation length to zero. So that would mm. make the E2 tests actually go through a lot faster. Because when you'd scroll or go to a new view, things would be appearing. Yeah. So that would actually make everything faster. But it, it also introduces a problem because sometimes the delays then do something uh, like that. Some bugs can not be uncovered if you don't have the delays. It's the same yeah, thing right. as with the market API. Like if the market API has like almost zero latency, some sort of race conditions and stuff like that don't appear in the UI when you don't have the latency. Yeah, yeah. But that's, uh, you know, I think if this sort of discussion does surface the fact that you can like use visual testing, but there are limitations on how much confidence you can get from it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and like one of the points that I've, I've been also thinking is like, well, I've been thinking that you need stable data for your application so that whenever you run a test, it, it's going to be like returning the same items in the list and same information over and over again when you test them. Uh, but that, that's actually true that you also need like, like all the inputs need to be stable. So, um, frames in animations and, and so on. So like every, every input your application basically gets, uh, ideally would be the same and often it can be even like a configuration difference. So I noticed actually today when I was doing some manual visual testing at work and we, in the development environment, we have this chat bubble that it's disabled and we have it in the production. So there's a difference with the configuration when I'm comparing local to the production. And that's quite often the case that you have these random little things that you have in production, but you don't want them in development. So yeah, definitely stable inputs for your application. So we now have like two different categories of visual testing. So we have this, this sort of end to end visual testing or, you know, application yeah. visual testing. And then we have this sort of component level visual testing. So in a lot of the cases, you'd have something like a storybook or just an environment where you can render components individually, like just how they look. And then you use some tool. Well, the authors of storybook have chromatic, which mm. is like a tool that is 100% geared towards this use case so that yeah. every PR it will go through all the components in the storybook and make sure that they're not visually different. Yeah. Uh, or it, or then you, you can use something like Percy. So I think that problem space is a lot easier in a sense, because you don't have the issues with the network because it's uh, static data. You don't have issues with asynchronous loading and even not with animations. And even if you'd have issues with animations, you could disable them more easily like in yeah. the storybook environment in a sense, because you can yeah. decide not to use them there. So you don't have this stack combined issue. So that, that problem space is sort of easier. And I think that like this sort of good solutions already exist. So if someone is thinking about that, check out Chromatic or Percy. But then on the application testing side, what are the tools? You said you've been looking into the history. So maybe we'll go back on yeah. memory lane and see like, where have we started and where are we now? Yeah, yeah. That's before, before we jump to that, I, I think like it's a good to have the idea of the, like separating these two use cases. And, and I think the basically the key difference is that the more, more smaller units you are going to test, the 
less inputs they will actually have. So there's less of changing environments that can change that negatively affect the testing experience. So that kind of makes them automatically easier because there's only the React props that you want to test and that's about it. But that's everything that's going to change in, in that. And uh, maybe even like a third category that I have, like you have this unit tests of components and then you're testing applications. And these applications, I, I could even divide in, into two subcategories that you have single page apps slash like dynamic React applications, and then you have more or less static sites. And out of these, the static sites are where I think you most probably get the best return on any investment for visual testing, because the data is usually like blog posts, your company vision, etc. And it's usually going to be static anyways. But then you have these highly dynamic applications like dashboards and, and consoles that you see for SaaS companies. And those are going to be the most tricky ones, in my opinion. And before we even try to dive into the history, I still haven't decided, should you do visual testing for that type of application category or not? So it's definitely like mixed feelings, whether you get value out of that testing. Yeah, that's a very good distinction. Like you have this, well, people talk about highly interactive apps and then you have this more content oriented apps. I used to work in the CMS space, so I would build mm. websites on top of CMSs and there uh, visual testing is highly beneficial because you often, you might have like, let's say you have 30 different kinds of views, you know, articles, blog posts, employee pages, whatever. So different types. So the testing strategy in itself is quite easy. Like you just yeah. decide that I have all these sort of different types of content. And when I make changes, only the kind of content should change that I'm trying to change. But you often have dependencies in the code. You might make a change to a global CSS file that then, you know, changes things in an unexpected place. In these environments, you also often make changes quite rapidly. You might not even have like code reviews or maybe you have, but it's a different type of an environment often than yeah. sort of building custom interactive applications. So I, I, I definitely agree with the fact that in this environment, visual testing is and can be highly beneficial. But then I do also agree with the sentiment that you had that you're not sure like yeah. how well in the end testing full-blown interactive JavaScript apps can be done with visual testing. Yeah. Yeah, that, definitely. Maybe that in mind, we can jump to the like maybe tooling history and, and see it yeah. in the end whether this makes sense or not. So it, this is like my perspective today, the history. So as a background, I basically started at maybe 2010, my web development. And when I was starting, most of the online resources were around jQuery. And when you were doing Ajax requests, that was like kind of a new thing. So you, you just had XHR requests coming up and you could do dynamic stuff. And I think at this point, Gmail was probably the only single page app in the world. <laughs> like this is how I remember it. So when I started, it took maybe one year and then Phantom JS was released. So at, at that point it, it was based on WebKit, uh, if I remember correctly. So 
they basically wrapped the Chromium core in a Node.js project that one could then drive and, and use for screenshots and, and visual testing, basically. And that's kind of the first tool I knew about. And when I was reading about articles about Phantom.js, people were referring to Selenium, like, how does this differ from that? Or I hate Selenium testing, which th that phrase I've heard so many times. But unfortunately, I don't actually have personal experience of Selenium. But so for, if I do you have, have you actually used Selenium in projects? I've only tested it out, but not in a production project. Yeah. So I think we've started like for wandering around this space at pretty much the same time because I I have the same like idea of Phantom JS being sold as the better version of Selenium in a in a sense like or a better alternative for. Yeah, definitely. And then that's a, actually like an interesting thought that what I've been thinking is that is it really the uh, kind of a, the tooling that will fix the issue or is it more about these underlying issues that we were previously discussing that make this space very hard to solve in a nice way so for example i i think timeouts have, have been like the very long issue in selenium tests that people have been complaining about and, and the same issue kind of is still there if you use the same practices even with puppeteer so it, it's not like the tooling will automatically help I think that the tools give you a different kind of control over what is happening. So I think that's one big difference. Like how close are you to the actual browser, like yeah. APIs and what access do you have to everything that is happening? So I think that is a difference between Selenium and PhantomJS. You get yeah. closer to what is actually happening. In, in the browser. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good angle and, and thought about it. Um, I think the next tooling that I kind of figured out or read about was, was basically Slimer JS, which was basically phantom JS, but it, it ran on Firefox engine. So the Gecko engine and it, and it had the same API as, as phantom JS. And while this had been around for a while, there was also Casper JS. And it's funny how these names are very similar to each other. And I think it was released in the change of 2011 and 12. And it was a higher level of abstraction on top of these Gecko and web-based like Phantom and, and Slimer. And you basically had these testing utilities that would make easier to write unit tests or, or visual tests using those cores. So. I, I think Phantom JS in the end, the actual API was uh, very small. So you, you basically had a few different ways to run code and you could take a screenshot, but I think that's, that was mostly about it. And then Casper JS basically tried to implement like wait for take screenshot of this element and, and overall make the API usage a bit more pleasant when you're writing tests. And at, at least I think. Around that time, 2013 or something, we did use Casper.js in like a real customer project that we were working on at that time. And my first experience with these tools were that I remember spending like, I think it was like two weeks of trying to figure out why our visual testing wasn't working or, or it was more like an integration testing that we used Phantom.js to click around in the UI and then assert certain stuff. 
and they just weren't working when I was figuring out that for two weeks and, and basically never found out the reason. So they can be very tricky to work with. I think that is a, is a good picture of these early tools that you had. They didn't have a lot of kind of answers to the the very fundamental questions that you yeah. have when you do this sort of end-to-end or visual testing. These tools are very close to one another because, well, you do basically the same stuff. So you render stuff on a headless browser. So a browser that doesn't have a window, so you can run it on a server. In the individual testing version, you then just take a screenshot and compare that. You know, you do that same stuff until when you actually then do the test. With visual testing, you compare images, what is rendered, and then with E2A testing, you compare something else on the page, either DOM nodes or whatever it is. So like the tools are similar. So what happened then? Like Casper.js didn't really work out, at least for you. I I have the similar experience that like in the AngularJS world, uh, Protractor was used a lot. And I think it... Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that. I'm not actually sure. What, what did it use underneath? Did it use Selenium? Maybe. But like... Possibly. You'd have this... Yeah. You'd have these same sort of issues that, you know, people who did E2A testing quite quickly started thinking that this is just not worth it. Or, you know, using yeah. these tools is just too cumbersome. Yeah. Yeah, d- definitely. Well, yeah, what happened after that, at least for me, was a long, long pause in, in terms of these tools because I I had quite a difficult beginning with, with Casper.js and, and Phantom.js. So I kind of, I was thinking that, okay, well, I'll, I'll try it later on when, when Phantom.js has been matured a bit. And then I got interested about Phantom.js again. Again, I think it was a couple of years later, but I was just trying to make a tool that can take screenshot out of any URL. So I, I think I used Phantom.js for that. And it's one of the, one of the older GitHub repos that I have. And at that time, at least my experience with Phantom.js, when I actually integrated more deeply into it, was that it, it felt like a pretty hacky solution in a way that all the examples that uh, were made with Phantom.js, they were these, um, I don't know, it, it, the code quality wasn't very, very good. And you kind of had, had to pass random positional arguments to these Phantom.js scripts to make it work. And, and sometimes it just didn't work, even though you tr- tried to pass them correctly. And there was not a, not really a way to debug them. So if you wanted to get like the console logs out of the Phantom.js, that was pretty tough. Uh, you didn't have this. I think the only access to it was by a put from STD out or something. So there wasn't this type of API that, for example, Chrome nowadays uses, that there is the remote debugging API that it mostly uses, and it's very well structured. So it, it, it was kind of a, I think, felt like a one-off hack uh, that kind of got really popular, at least to me. Yeah, well, it was, I think, for some use cases, easy to use. It was better than Selenium for from the perspective mm-hmm. of a lot of people. Uh-huh. Yeah, I actually remember one one special use case from the early days of React. Uh, there was a re- big React project that replaced a public website, and then the SSR scenarios then weren't really good. So the, the team kind of 
started thinking about that too late. So what happened is that they actually ran PhantomJS on a server. And every time a robot would come to a ride site, they would then, you know, render it with PhantomJS and pass the HTML to Google or whatever. So I, yeah. I think like, it, uh, even though it was probably quite cumbersome, it still was better than Selenium. The problem with Selenium is that it uses the web driver API. So the big difference between the old solutions in a sense, like where you can still use Selenium and a lot of companies actually do use it still. If you're doing development outside of Java mm. world, yeah. a lot of tools still use Selenium because it has adapters or the web driver API has adapters for a lot of languages. So you can write your E2E or visual tests with, with Python or Java, yeah. if that's what you prefer. Uh, so, but the big difference was that PhantomJS was closer to the actual browser. And then when Puppeteer came, it uses the, the DevTools API, which is like more full-fledged and can access stuff that the web driver API can't. So you get yeah. even more control and you're even more closer to the actual browser. And a lot of people love the fact that you can just write JavaScript. You know, it's just uh, a JavaScript API that you can command. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point that it kind of got closer and closer to the web development or the web core, the browser. And I think the final form now is that the actual core Chrome team is also working on the tools to enable all this. So I, I think everything has kind of led to that. And now, now because the people who are making the browser engines are also maintaining parts of how you control the engine with programs. It's going to make everything kind of more streamlined because they can control these both. So what's the situation today? What tools are out there that you, yeah. you know, you know, or you might even use? Yeah. So I think everything started when Chrome basically released that they have the headless version. It's going to be released. It was, I'm, I'm not sure how many years back then, but it's not like too old feature of Chrome. And then I think Firefox and others kind of followed that. And if it's the other way around, like, please correct me, but I, that's how I remember it. And then I think when that was re released, there was a couple of projects kind of competing against each other, how to control best Chrome. So there was at least Chromeless and Puppeteer. And I, I think Chromeless might've been like an exter external project. And then Puppeteer became the officially maintained, if I remember correctly. Yeah, at least it is the version that Google has been promoting all the time. So yeah, it is, yeah. It is their product. And, and nowadays if I'm doing, like I've been working on this screenshot tools and, and PDF printing tools. And for those I've been all the time using Puppeteer. It, it has become my standard for doing all kinds of integrations to headless Chrome. Yeah, it is like the most popular headless library out there and it has yeah. a big ecosystem. I actually did a few months ago, like uh, a deep dive into what tools there are there for E2E testing, which is hmm. similar. And yeah. basically, um, so if you go from that direction of E2E testing, you have like a Cypress, Puppeteer and Playwright basically. And Cypress is actually closest to the browser because it actually runs within Chrome. So that's a big difference. Mm. Like 
the Cypress test runner is actually a JavaScript application running in the browser, which is why so many people love it so much, because it, when it runs in the browser, it has a lot less latency and this sort of like Cypress became popular originally because it just felt so much more responsive than the other options. And you yeah, have yeah. some control that you might not otherwise have. And then as I uh, already kind of said, but Playwright is Microsoft's version of Puppeteer, but it's more E2E or more testing oriented. So they, they have inbuilt auto waiting and they actually now have some sort of an inspector UI, but it's not like an E2E testing tool or a visual testing tool. So it's more like just a headless Chrome, or it actually runs Edge, and I think it runs Firefox also. So it's a cross-browser version of Puppeteer that is more geared towards testing. But yeah, the problem with Playwright a few months ago still was that it is a lot more immature product or, you know, okay. and it has yeah. a lot smaller ecosystem. So for, as an example, if you want to log into Google APIs with a visual testing tool, then you need to actually pretend that you are a real user. And to do that with Puppeteer, you usually use an add-on that does this for you. And you don't have this add-on for Playwright. So if you need to right. yeah. in Soundflows log into Google, then Playwright is out of the question, or at least it was just a few months ago. So th that's the situation of these tools. So if you want to play safe, Puppeteer is still a good option, but it is it not a cross-browser yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point that it's just for driving the browser, basically. So it's very low-level ABI in a way if you want to be quick to write tests. So it makes sense to have, well, Cypress, for example. I think that's what many prefer. So automated visual testing in year 2021, the tools that are actually geared for this. So there is Squid, that is the tool that you built, which is a very kind of a simple or in a way simple screenshot comparison tool that uses Puppeteer. The good thing here is that it, it is simple, so it's easy to use if you want to compare screenshots yeah. to different versions of a page. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the tool is called Squint. Sorry, as no worries. So it, it's basically open source, kind of a poor man's version of these more mature companies that are doing this in production environments. This is how I would kind of describe the project. So, I mean, it, it is very useful and, and uh, I just used it today to manually review our application that none of the views had been actually changed after a large change. But it is still like geared towards this one of testing slash like reviews in, instead of being an automated tool that you connect to your pipeline. And yeah, we talked a lot about the open source history. So the tooling that how it evolved in open source world. And I think, um, it started all from the open source world, but nowadays there's like these popular SaaS companies actually that are packaging the whole stuff a bit nicer. So you mentioned the, what was the tool that you mentioned? The storybook. Uh, chromatic, but that is chromatic, basically yeah. for component level testing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I haven't used it, but it looked like a very nicely packaged system that you can use. And other tool that I've personally been using is this Percy.io and 
I think it was founded in 2015 and they've been doing this well. They are also doing the application like testing for, for visual dips, but I think what I've gotten most value out of it was um, by using it in static sites or front pages and, and these public company websites. So you basically integrate it to your PR flow so that it will take screenshots out of all views and compare it to, uh, I think it compares it to the latest master. And not, not only you get the dips, but there's like a nice web UI where you can uh, view the dips and then you can approve that, okay, these changes are actually okay. And it becomes a part of your PR review process. So yep. I really like that type of integration in visual tests because the false positives are almost inevitable if you're doing this like pass fail type of testing visually that there's gonna be wealth we mentioned the animations or timeouts even though you want to try to prepare for them i think they will be hitting you at some point anyways yeah yeah and then you have sometimes some sort of one pixel change because some yeah. drop shadow was rendered differently for some reason and you'd have these super annoying diffs and false positives. So I totally agree. Percy, we're using it at Swarmia and it was yeah. a very, very pleasant experience because you can, well, as you said, you, you can have just a GitHub check that will then mark itself pending. And then you can go to the UI, it will give you the changes and then you can accept them. And then whether or not you accept them decides if the check fails or succeeds. It's a very good way of, cause you know, when you do visual testing, you probably also have visual changes that you intended to happen. So, you know, it's a, a very nice workflow. Percy is actually now owned by BrowserStack, which might be oh, right. yeah. like a lot of people might be familiar with as BrowserStack is used for cross browser testing in a lot of yeah. companies. Uh, so they acquired Percy to add like this sort of visual testing capabilities to their, their job. So that is definitely. From my perspective, at least the best tool that I right now know for doing yeah. these sort of same, visual testings. Same here. Uh, if I need to do something, I'll, I'll probably start with that more, most probably. Um, so I guess yeah. there is the question of uh, how can you get started with visual testing? And I think the answer, would it be that you should try out Percy or? <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's what I would actually suggest, like if you want to have this first good experience of visual testing, I would start trying that. And probably I would try it with static sites. So let's say you have a Gatsby site or just like a pure HTML site. Um, you will probably find that experience the most uh, pleasant uh, instead of trying to integrate it to your database, deal with timeouts, deal with mocks and all that stuff. I think it has a storybook style guide integration. So you can also try it out with, with this sort of component development environments that you have. Okay, cool. That, that's actually a new feature for me. I, I didn't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Then do you have any pro tips left for visual testing? Well, I was thinking while we were discussing that, is there any sense in that? Like, or is it useful to do it? Will you get value out of it? So while we have been discussing, I, I've been thinking that maybe calling it visual testing it is even a bit of far-fetched because I mostly do like, um, well, I'm not sure if it's testing, but it's more rather like 
uh, visual reviewing. So I'm kind of using most of these tools to make manual review processes easier. And that's how I mostly use these visual testing tools. So I'm not sure whether it makes sense to try to integrate them into CI tests or not, but at least that's where I've been settled in this space. So I, I feel like that's very good value. Instead of doing this manual, like you're checking your other browser and then you have the same view on other browser and you're just like trying to visually with your eyes compare that, okay, is everything okay? That's probably a case where you want to use some kind of tool. But then if, if you would want to catch all these uh, visual bugs that you have in production and your application, I'm not sure if that setup will bring enough value in most setups. That would be my kind of summary or pro tip about it. But I'm interested to hear if somebody is kind of feeling differently about it. Yeah, exactly. If someone listening to this podcast has some opinions, uh, please do post them on Twitter. And yeah, the Front and Greatness um, podcast account. So we'll hear your opinions. Um, yeah, definitely uh, like the good experiences. Yeah, exactly. And even the bad ones, you know, if you agree, then that's a data point for yeah, yeah. Game and also me, I, I I do think like that a lot of applications do benefit from some sort of smoke kind of testing, like that you just yeah. enter through all the views and make sure that they still work. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And if you use E two E tools, basically the version is like did the loader stop loading or you know you checked like a class or a text or whatever. So uh, I think visual screenshots, if you can do them easily, they do give you more confidence. And combined with something like Percy, where you actually only review the parts that have some changes in them. So yeah, say you have like a hundred screenshots with something like Percy, you only need to click through maybe two of them. When you do your PR, it actually makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, actually today at work, because I did a big PR on uh, updating our tooling which may have affected, you know, random places in the app. And then yeah, it gave me a lot of confidence when you ran Squid. So, you know, I had done the visual review, but basically if there would be artifacts, like when you're trying to compare the same view on your screen, you're like, it does look the same, but then it's just as easy to miss like a small detail that actually yeah. is different because it's not uh, a very easy manual work. So yeah. there's a place for these tools for sure. Uh, how much you get value out of them is is then it depends. Yeah, your yeah. developer should answer. So yeah, let me go to the last question of today, which is yeah. longer about automated visual testing, but more about how you can level up as a front end developer. So what resources, books, blog posts, people to follow, YouTube channels, whatever. Would you recommend to a front-end developer who wants to go from good to great? Sure. So I, I personally like newsletters because they are usually a list of pre-filtered stuff that uh, some person have been already reading the internet and they filter it for you. So those are pretty nice. I think I've subscribed to front-end focus and it used to start with little tips like um, what you can do with Chrome debugger. And nowadays it's a pr pretty good list of front-end related articles and what's happening right now. I think that's a good newsletter. Overall, 
there might might be good stuff in in Reddit and Hacker News, but I don't follow them like actively. And some like individual bloggers that I follow, I think Dan Abramov is, is whose blog post I tend to read. I, I don't think I follow him in any medium, but they are often linked in channels, which is natural. But it, overall, one kind of a random tip that I don't don't think that many are doing is that I think it's re- really convenient to do this like uh, GitHub issue Googling, which I like to call it. So uh, oftentimes you Google, of course, stuff, but it doesn't necessarily index GitHub issues the best. So sometimes you can actually find like the best discussions or best pieces of information in GitHub issues when you search from from specific projects. So this is not like a tip to get like industry news, but it's a tip to often quickly solve a problem. Like if you just search from GitHub issues about the project, it will usually reveal that somebody else has actually dealt with this. And I think I solved like 90% of my issues with libraries with this with this great trick that you can use. I do that also. So usually I start Googling and if I don't have good answers, I will go to the repository, to the issues tab, and then I will remove the, because it by default, there are the filters is issue and is open. So yeah. I remove those and replace it with my search text. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's how I usually find if someone has had issues with them. The, yeah, the library. De- definitely, because usually the error can be quite uh, vague and random, and it, it might be like super hard to find it out without these existing issues. Yeah, and actually, the the one pro tip that I think goes into this is that you need to be able to select a good part from the error text. Yeah, you need to kind of look at the error message that you get and think about which part of this is like unique. And maybe they're down error code or something, and then put that into the issue search box. And that usually gives you the best results. It is yeah. that the key to the 10x developer choosing correct parts from stack traces? Yeah, I, I actually have like a draft post on how to create a 10x developer. And like the basic strategy is like uh, to sum it up, I'll write down at some point. Yeah. But from my perspective, that basic strategy is to make sure that all the other developers in the organization don't get to work very well. So that is how you have the one person who is able to work 10x compared to others. That is the only viable strategy I actually know, know that might work. So yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for the tips. I actually just subscribed to the front end focus school newsletter. There are a lot of newsletters. It's very popular nowadays to have your own newsletter and then maybe do it very well or maybe do it less well. So it's nice to hear from someone who has been subscribed to a newsletter for a longer time uh, for a recommendation. That usually is a good sign. Thank you for joining the show. And thanks Thanks for inviting me. Who listened to this episode and we'll get back to you in a few weeks.